Welcome to the panel, Scanners. We're here tonight to talk about Star Trek and Star Trek villains. Having covered the heroic side of Starfleet and Star Trek, we're going to talk about, to borrow a term from another sci-fi, the dark side. Darren, you ready to talk about this? Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about this earlier. Star Wars has the most, maybe the most iconic villain in history, in Darth Vader. At least he's in the discussion, right? But I feel like Star Trek may have a deeper bench than Star Wars. Oh yeah, I would agree with that. So I'm excited. To, I, I'll say, you and I know each other so well that I knew who your number one was for um, the t- when we did the top ten heroes. And but in this one, I I think I have an idea, but I'm real interested because I think you've gone down. Uh, more Star Trek pathways than I have because all of mine come from the original series and by extension the movies um, and Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, I've I've got a little deeper list than that, but um, that's the crux of my uh, 10 is mostly from those properties. Okay, I'm I'm excited to get into this. All right, you ready to do that? I'm ready. All right, honorable mention. The only honorable mention I have here is because he starts out as kind of a villainous figure, I'm going to go with Q. Wow, okay. By That's the awesome one. John Delancey, but I can't really consider him a villain because of where he ends up. Yeah, I don't so know. I, was, I wanted him. him on the list, but I just couldn't do it. You know, there's no way he goes on the heroes list, but I get what you're saying. There's almost like he he straddles the fence. Don't worry, we'll talk a little bit more about but, Q. Yeah, I mean, everything um, he does is generally for the benefit of us, you know, or for humanity of Picard. It's, so it's hard to say it's evil. Mostly, that's true. <laughs> Most, then, I mean, he does like to screw with them, but still. Oh, well, yeah, and I, I get what you're saying, yeah. So my honorable mentions are, and uh, this is a good one, and I wouldn't have remembered this unless he was in the trailer for Star- Picard Season 3, and that's Moriarty. Obviously, the Sherlock Holmes villain is almost as much a Captain Picard villain at this point uh, as he is a... Yeah, we'll be talking about him more a little later. Oh, good. Gary Mitchell from the original series, in fact, the second pilot. Oh, good call. Kind of the predecessor to Q. Yeah, the predecessor (laughs) and the predecessor to the Force. Um, Oh. Yeah, right out of... That's right straight from George Lucas's mouth. And... And a bit of a, not clearly not as powerful, but also not, uh, Harry Mudd, um, who from the original series and Discovery played by Rain Wilson, the guy from The Office. Yep. Funny, a very funny actor. I, I think it's Rain Wilson. Um, if you're thinking Dwight from The Office, yes, it's Rain Wilson. Rain Wilson, yes, that's what I'm thinking of. Um, he played, he did a great job as Harry Mudd, but also, is he a villain? I don't know. It's So, uh, that, those are my honorable mentions. All right. So Can I, guess I ask one question sure. before we begin? Did you pick, are all of yours like individual characters or did you end up selecting like an entire faction? Yeah, I have both. Or alien I have race? both. Okay, cool. So do I. I yep. was just curious. Okay, so my number 10 is going to be Goldicott, the former commander of Deep Space Nine before Benjamin Sisko takes over during the Bajoran occupation by the Cardassians. Uh, the guy is just a malicious son of a... He is just thoroughly rotten, evil, despicable, and an absolute pile of gorn crap. Uh, number nine, I'm going with also from DS9, the Dominion, the empire led by the Changelings, a.k.a. Odo, Chief of Security, 
uh, dedicated to instilling order to the galaxy or domination, 10,000 years of victories through their genetically engineered servant races, the Vorta and the Jabhadar, an incredibly formidable foe, one that is big enough of a threat to force an alliance of Starfleet, the Klingons, and the Romulans. So, yeah, number nine, Dominion. Number eight, Captain Nero from the Kelvin Timeline movies, uh, played by Eric Bana. Traveled back in time after the destruction of Romulus in the future, blaming Spock and the Federation and causes a splinter timeline with all sorts of chaos. Number seven, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, Christopher Lloyd's Kruge. Kruge? Kruge? I can't remember how you pronounced it. I think it's Kruge. Kruge? It's K-R-U-G-E. Maybe you're right. So I, I haven't seen that movie in forever, but I do remember that he's pretty much uh, created what the modern view of a Klingon was at that point. Yeah. I mean, vicious, backstabbing, violent, killed his lover for reviewing information meant for his eyes, killed a gunner for accidentally destroying the vessel they were trying to disable, murdered Kirk's son. I mean, just absolute, this is what Klingons became because of his performance and that character. And finally, number six, the evil data lore. Oh, um, so lore, great. Lore was a great character. You know, his, his data is innocent and relatable. Lore mm. is just despicable, conniving and scheming. And he's a character you love to hate. And he's just played so beautifully by Brent Spiner with a totally different attitude. Yeah. I mean, um, he does a great job. I loved him. And he is uh, the way, always the way he said, Come with me, brother. I like the way he just the way he said brother. It just it was so icky. Ah, oh, such great, such great picks. Yeah, I, as you were saying this, you know, I'm like, yeah, Star Trek's got a really deep bench, and two of those on there for you, Gal Dukat and the Dominion or the Jajem Hadar, are two I'm very familiar with, but I haven't seen Deep Space Nine. But they're so popular within the Star Trek community that. Like it's like you don't know Star Trek villains. At least your 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 cycle of Star Trek villains isn't complete if you've not seen DS Nine. No, they they are better. the threat on that show. Um, so one other mention I I had and I I forget, failed to look up his name. I thought it was Gul Dukat. It isn't. It's a Cardassian, and it's the one in the episode where he's torturing Picard with the Oh, lights. I can't remember his name. I can't I know remember him. But he was played by David S. Warner. I know that. David Warner played him. So, David Warner played him? Yes. Oh, I which almost, is funny because... almost positive that's who was playing him. That would be interesting because he was also in, what, Star Trek VI as uh, the Klingon... Ambassador, yeah. Not Ambassador, um, Emperor. Was he the Emperor? Yeah, he was the Emperor. Oh, wow. All right, so... Yeah. My number 10 is the Gorn. First appearance, season two, episode, The Arena, January 19, 1967. Yeah, a bit silly now, and it's sort of become a meme and a pop culture punchline, but for the time, that's a damn good costume for a TV series at that time. And the Gorn appear to be positioned as one of the chief, if not the chief antagonists for Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Uh, and they are, you've not seen them, but they're terrifying. You've not seen much of them, but they are terrifying. Also, Kirk's fight with the Gorn Gays rives to the double fist punch. And one of my favorite memes that shows when Kirk created a bazooka out of sand and he blows away the Gorn. He had a hollowed out log 
and sand, and he created a bazooka. And one of the favorite means, like, it makes total sense. That's why he's the captain. Um, my number nine is Gary Seven. First appearance from the original series, episode Assignment Earth, March 29th, 1968. By all accounts, he might not be a villain in the truest sense. More of an antagonist, different methods, fighting for the same goal. A Gary Seven TV series could have happened. That guy, it was really fun with him. My number eight are the Parasites from the original series season one episode, Operation Annihilate, April 13th, 1967. These things, while silly now, looking like little more than rubber vomit, they terrified me as a kid. Flying around the scenes, attaching themselves to their victim's neck, causing extreme pain, then violent insanity. I you I would after watching that episode, I would walk under door frames and look up to make sure there wasn't one there because I was so afraid of those things. It's just a memory. Um, and here's a quick trivia note, Mark. See if you can get this one. This episode features the first appearance of Captain Kirk's brother Sam Kirk who has already played a key role in Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Sam Kirk was originated by which famous 1960s actor? I could not tell you, Darren. William Shatner, with a mustache. Um, <laughs> you like that one, do you? Yeah. I like that. That yeah. was good. My number seven is uh, someone or someones I feel we'll be talking about more of in a bit. The Borg. Oh, yes, we will. Well, I'll say this. First appearance, Marvel's Star Wars number seven, 1978. I kid you not, Mark. In what holds the distinction? Now, I'm assuming you're not going in this direction with your justification for the Borg. So I'm going to continue if you don't mind. Go for it. Once again, that's Marvel Star Wars number 7, 1978. I kid you not. And what holds the distinction of being the very first Star Wars expanded universe story, as issues 1 through 6 were adaptations of the original movie, in issue 7, Han and Chewie are paid to assist an alien in delivering the final burial rites to a half-human, half-machine who belongs to a species, or race, or collective as it's called in the comic. A collective consciousness called the Borg. That being that appears in the comics bears a striking resemblance to the Borg as they would appear in Star Trek Next Generation. I was going to dig the issue out, but I think you know my house is being remodeled at this point, so I will find this at some point, but go look this up. I couldn't find it on the internet. Tim back then says, you may have stumbled across something. It hasn't... I haven't seen it. Otherwise, their first appearance would have been in the Star Trek next second season, Star Trek: The Next Generation second season episode Q Who, May eighth, nineteen eighty eight. For more on this, check out our first Star Wars special from twenty fifteen, in which I did the review of the first batch of Marvel's original Star Wars comics runs, and I do talk a little bit more about like this is absolutely the Borg as we know it in the Next Generation. And by the way, I read those comics, so you don't have to. Well, so it's kind of like the Star Wars Holiday Special, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yes. By the oh, way, CJ man. really wants to watch that. Jeez. I'm so sorry. 
Yeah, just skip past the scenes with Chewie's father. They're inappropriate for a small oh, child. God, yeah, they are. Um, so, yeah, number five. <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, Moriarty as my number five wow, from the episode. Wow, that's Originating in elementary, Aren't Dear you on Data. Number six? What's that? You should be on number six. Five. We Hold did on. ten through six. That was my... Okay, sorry. Oh, I haven't gone to my six yet. Sorry. That's, oh, okay, we well, need to do fault. six. I'm sorry. Okay. Which one was you? Your, your, I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to seven. step on your toes there. But my number six is Lore, um, which was also your number uh, seven. Was that is that right? Um, lore, first appearance, yes. season one six, episode. Actually. First appearance, season yeah. one episode. Data Lore, January eighteenth, nineteen eighty-eight. Data's unfettered brother proved a formidable and very dangerous opponent to the Federation. Lore is always one step away from convincing Data to join him permanently, and was briefly successful in pilfering Data from the Enterprise D. The pair teaming with the Borg nearly crippled Starfleet. Sorry, Mark. You're no, five. no problem. I mean, well, it's always stuck with me was the end of lore. Oh. I love you, brother. Goodbye, lore. Well, depending <laughs> on when this ends, we know that was not the end. Possibly not. Uh, so, yeah, as I was saying, my number five is Moriarty, played by Daniel Davis in the uh, first scene in Elementary Dear Data, where the holodeck is charged with creating a villain for Data, a challenge for Data that he will, or an adversary for Data that he will find challenging after he proceeds to completely annihilate every home story without any effort. Uh, what the holodeck comes up with is a version of Moriarty that is the amalgamation of tons of literary of literary evil apparently i can't talk tonight and uh achieves self-sentience and re tries repeatedly to take over the enterprise and if uh, moriarty had a body boy would he have been higher on my list that that premise even back then seems so stupid but it was carried so well who was the actor you said uh, Daniel Davis was the actor's name. Yeah, and he reprises his role. I couldn't believe he was still alive, only to find out he's three years younger in that episode than I am now. And I'm like, dang! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw him on the uh, Picard season three trailer. I flipped out. So yeah, that was that was that was a shock. There were multiple shocks in that. Uh, my number five R is the Romulans. Um, Season 1 episode, Balance of Terror, December 15th, 1966, among, amongst Star Trek's high points to this day, that episode is magnificent. And the remake in Strange New Worlds is just as good. Uh, this, the Romulans, they are the Federation's true chief rival. It is the Romulans, a mirror image of the Vulcans, that are the antagonists in this ongoing Cold War. Much of the Cold War is centered around the conspiracy behind the Romulans. They had seemingly gone unseen since first contact was made while a fragile truce was born. But this truce was little more than a border war, and the neutral zone between the Romulans and the United Federation of Planets was a popular and effective plot device for years. While their technological capabilities are on par with Starfleet's, their methods are cold, calculated, and swift. While Starfleet hesitates to employ its destructive capabilities, the Romulans do not. When it is revealed that Romulans cannot be physically differentiated from Vulcans, the seeds of distrust are sown within the Federation. A small but brilliant detail made 
to satisfy those budgetary restraints to make the Romulans look exactly like the Vulcans. The Romulans are indeed a radical subsect of the ancient Vulcan homeworld. Their appearance always brings about a sense of dread among the crew of the Enterprise and viewers. They are normally saved for the highest moment of dramatic effect, true on the original series and the next generation, and were a major highlight from Strange New Worlds first season. They bring about the collective uh-oh when they appear. Good choice. Oh, well, my number four we're at now? Four? Yep. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to say the Klingon Empire, but I chose to go with individuals that exemplified what I found to be menacing about the Klingon Empire. For example, Kruj, and then this one, General Chang from the Undiscovered Country. Ah. Brilliantly portrayed by Christopher Plummer. Um, Plummer apparently suggested that they remove the wig prosthetic and tone down the prosthetics to make him a little more human and more relatable so he'd be more evil. Um, fan of Shakespeare, quotes it throughout the film, has a bolted-on eye patch with the Klingon emblems on the bolts. Um, just die-hard Klingon hardliner. Sets up the Enterprise and gets... Kirk and Bones, was it, thrown in prison for yep. attacking and destroying the ship of the Klingon Emperor, played by David Warner as Emperor Gorkon. And I actually laughed when I was looking into this because the other Klingon Emperor was uh, Emperor Melkor before Gorkon, and I was laughing because that's straight out of Tolkien. Melkor becomes Morgoth, a.k.a. the Dark Lord, before oh. who, cre who creates Sauron. So... <laughs> It's like, well, somebody in that projection was a Tolkien fan. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Chang is, uh, will do anything to keep the Klingon Empire from working with the Federation. An energy facility explodes, contaminates the Klingon homeworld's atmosphere, and Gorkon decides to turn to the Federation for help, to Chang's dismay, and he goes behind the scenes and just manufactures a situation to try to start... Not a cold war again, but an all-out war, a hot war, a firing war. He wants everything burned to ashes. Just an awesome movie, too, because it's so analogous oh, yeah. to what was happening at the time with the Soviet Union. And I think Chang was definitely uh, an, 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 uh, um, an analogy for or, uh, representing the KGB. He was essentially those who were loyal to the KGB. Um, and that was I heard that the whole premise... Of Star Trek Six was uh, forgive me because I didn't I, this, I didn't think this was going to come up, but the director who directed Six was also the director who Nicholas Meyer I think is his name yes who directed Star Trek Two, and he didn't want to do it and they said well what we're doing is basically Nixon only Nixon can go to China and what we want to do with Six is only Kirk could go to the Klingons, and you're like oh that's nice. interesting. So, and it's such a great setup because you understand to a degree where Chang is coming from when at the beginning of the movie, Spock says to Kirk, Jim, they're dying. And Kirk says, the Klingons killed my son. Let them die. And that gets blasted everywhere. And so you understand where Chang's coming from to a degree. Like, yeah. We went to these guys for help, and the, one of their most famous guys, the guy who kind of kicked our ass, is saying, let him die. Um, now, Kirk, of course, 
he's still feeling the emotions of the death of his son. And he, of course, he's a dynamic character. Always has been. He comes around. But that, that's such a great pick. That is fantastic. Christopher Plummer also. Oh, one of my favorite actors. Yeah, he's just, amazing. Uh, just a great. Well, to build off that, four, number four, uh, Mark, my number four is the Klingons. Um, first appearance, the season one episode of the original series, Errand of Mercy, March 23rd, 1967. Featured, but not necessarily positioned as the Federation's greatest threat during the run of the original series, it is not until the original cast's movie run that the Klingons emerge as the primary threat to Starfleet's mission of peace and exploration. And yet, even then, only briefly. To casual Star Trek fans, I think the Klingons are, and the Klingon Empire, are widely accepted as the chief antagonists. By rights, they should rank much higher, but they've kind of been allies, and this isn't in the storyline, this is for us as Star Trek viewers, they've now been allies to the Federation for far longer than they were enemies. And this makes them more interesting to me. While they are allies to the Federation, by the time Next Generation premieres, the foundation of which was Star Trek VI, that alliance never really rises above its fragility, does it? Um, while their interests are aligned, I thought one of the brilliant things is like I always got the feeling that Klingons can turn on them at any moment. Um, valuing honor and battle above all, protecting the Empire at all costs and seeking out their own glorious demise. Perhaps no fictional faction of warriors are more formidable than the Klingon warriors. And this is where I was going to pose this the last time, Mark. While I am a Star Wars fan first, I don't even think the Galactic Empire would stand a chance against the Klingon Empire at its peak. The only ones who could beat the Klingons were the Klingons which was the framework for Star Trek VI, as they almost led themselves to their own distinction. And here we go. I'm going to ask you a question. And we have very well professed, both of us, for the long as we've known each other, we are Star Wars fans unapologetically and defend Star Wars to the hilt. But we also, as we are espousing in these podcasts, very much lovers of Star Trek too. As much as we love Star Wars... Give me a battalion of stormtroopers and a couple of Klingon warriors. Battalion of how much was is it? What do you think's in a battalion? Uh, you know, I'm not a military tactician. I couldn't tell you. Let's just call it twenty-five. <laughs> Let's just call it twenty-five. All right. Hold on one second, will you? See, we're really off on that. <laughs> Hold on a second. Uh, how much is in a battalion? A battalion would be 820 soldiers. Wow, okay. So, so yeah, let's uh, go with a squad. <laughs> let's go with a squad. How much is in a squad? Uh, squad's probably like half a dozen to a dozen, depending okay. on their layout. So. All right, so let's take two squads, 24, okay? Or two, or two let's just go 24, whatever. Versus, uh, let's see, a squad of stormtroopers is 10, so two okay. squads is going to be 20 stormtroopers. Two squads is 20. I'm going to give you two squads of stormtroopers, and I'm going to give you four Klingon warriors. Which one are you taking? My money is on the Klingons, hands down. I will not take that bet any other way. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to give you three Star Destroyers versus one Klingon Bird of Prey. Which Who are you taking? Well, the Star Destroyers can't cloak, so battle over. <laughs> all right, all right. So that's what I thought. And this Especially is kinda... if you can get General Chang's Klingon Bird of Prey that can oh, fire while cloaked. 
Yeah, that to me, that, 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 it's just the coolest looking. And I love the Millennium Falcon. I love the TIE Fighters. I love the X-Wing. The Bird of Prey is one of my all-time favorite sci-fi ships. That thing looks like it's going to just destroy, right? It's aptly named. It looks predatory. Yeah, when it, when it, when that thing uncloaks in Star Trek, you're like, oh my God, (laughs) that thing is going to destroy some, or no, like three, excuse me, three, not two. Like that, right away, you're like, I, I, I kind of want the Klingons to win. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just the best looking ship of all. So yeah, my number four, uh, the Klingons. That they're just, they're just cool, man. All right. Well, my number three is also a race, as previously mentioned, first appearing on the Next Generation episode. Q who. Resistance is futile. I am going with the Borg for my number three, one of the greatest threats Starfleet ever faced. The Borg came out of nowhere, destroying everything in their path, or rather assimilating everything in their path. The entire goal to strengthen and build and evolve the collective, they will cut apart any species in their path, take their technology, take their people, and make it part of their own. Um... You note that I conspicuously do not have the Borg Queen on my list because I was not a fan of the concept. Really? I actually liked the Borg better as just a collective mind. I wasn't really a fan of the introduction of the Borg Queen. She was played beautifully by uh, Alice Creech, but uh, I I thought she did a great job. I thought it was a cool plot line. I just liked the Borg better without the Queen. Uh, very, I mean, obviously, very H.R.R. Geiger inspired, um, almost just leaping oh, off, very some, much uh, leaping so. out of some of his artwork, and very creepy. And one of the of, of like, I guess, my late childhood, one of the biggest old blank moments was when. Don't go there! Don't go there! Don't okay. go there! <laughs> I understand. I think I know what you're going to say, and don't go there. Boy, is this going to be interesting going forward? Then that's so. Your number three is the Borg. Uh, I, they're just, again, they... Oh, and I, I loved the upgrade they got in the movie First Contact with the visual prosthetics and everything. They went from being, okay, the Borg are a terrifying enemy to, holy crap, this is something out of a horror movie. Yeah. Um, and one of the best Star Trek movies, uh, also, First Contact. Directed just, by Jonathan Frakes. Just fantastic Star Trek movie. Um, yeah, so, okay, so I'll, I'll save what I was gonna say, and I... Now I'm not, now I, okay, we'll, we'll just move on. My number three, uh, my number three, well, uh, here we are again, Q who, but not his first appearance. My number three is Q. His first appearance was season one episode, the Star Trek, the next generation encounter at Farpoint. Very first, very first episode, 9th, September 28th, 1987. John Delancey, a Kent State University graduate like myself, he and Michael Keaton, apparently, uh, around the same time were there. Um, so I got Q and Batman that went to my college. Who you got? Um, pure, unbridled id. No discernible exercise of restraint. His motivation is unlike any other villain I can think of in the Star Trek universe or beyond. He's just effing with people because he can. Or does he have some divine plan for the universe and all its inhabitants? Maybe a little from column A, a little from column B. A case could be made, as you sort of indicated, that he really doesn't have any malice intended. He just wants to see things work, or how they work. What would happen if? 
Humanity needs to be tested, all other species as well. In most cases, as you very quickly pointed out, Mark, everything is returned to the status quo because he allows it to. He plays so well against the stoic Jean-Luc Picard and has great admiration for Captain Picard, even loves him, which is why I really struggled with parts of season two of Picard. That was not Q. Um, well, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't okay, weigh in on well, that. There, there's a moment you're going to go, no, that is never would he do that. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed season one of uh, Firefly. I mean, uh, Picard. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I haven't watched two yet. Q, I'm waiting until three's out and I'm just going to binge everything. That's yeah, smart. It, it, Q is all Including Strange New Worlds. Yeah, I'm, I cannot wait for you to see that. Q is all at once as dangerous an antagonist as any crew will come across. Yet also he's greeted with annoyance when he appears, which I find very humorous. Like when he shows up, we know this guy can pretty much wipe everyone out, but they kind of go, oh God, not him again. It's not like when the Borg or the Romulans show up and they're like, kind of like, uh oh, we got problems. It's more like, could you not, man? Could you just go elsewhere? (laughs) He's more like the guy, he, he gets a reaction like the guy that shows up at your party that nobody wanted there and drinks everything and makes it Yeah, and by himself. rights, he's more powerful than the Borg and the Romulans, but they're like, oh, yeah. oh son. But, and, but here's the thing, Picard often, score, often scolds him if he were a pe- petulant child, and most of this works because of Delancey's scene-stealing antics as he deftly navigates from comic relief to formidable opponent. But I don't think I would ever categorize Q as evil. He's definitely an antagonist, but he's not evil because he's not beyond reason. He's not beyond hope. Right, and plus, you know, you get to the end there, and obviously Picard and Q consider each other almost friends. Yeah. There's there's a mutual respect there bordering on friendships. I just, I could not put him in my villains list as much as I wanted to. But see, the problem is I really wanted to kind of get Q out. Like, I wanted to put him out there, and it's... He, he only fits here. He certainly wouldn't fit on the heroes list, as I indicated. But no. <laughs> you will get to the moment in Season 2 when he interacts with Picard. Now, that's not a spoiler because he was all over the trailers. Um, right. You will see it and you go, no, never would that happen. Go ahead. Now, I'm not as hardline about some things as some people, so I might be you able to just take told things me more, something. More you just told me so. something. This isn't taking a hard line. Trust okay. me, it isn't. Okay. Just, based I'll, on what you right. just said, you'll notice like... No. Okay, so they crapped all over what I liked about the character. Gotcha. <laughs> no, he, I mean, he, he's redeemed in this. But I just like... Uh, there's just something like, oh, man, I can't get there. All, all right, right, go ahead. All right, well, my number two in the episode Best of Both Worlds, a two-parter of Star Trek The Next Generation, the crew of the Enterprise once again encounters the Borg. Oh who abduct Captain Picard, and the next time we see him, he is billed as Locutus of Borg, Latin for he who speaks. And everything about Picard that makes him my favorite on my heroes list also makes him one of Starfleet's deadliest villains. Knowing everything about their tactics, his analytical mind, his genius in that field, allows the Borg cube to progress unhindered through Starfleet territory, up to and including the Starfleet Armada at Wolf 359, which Locutus promptly cuts to pieces, destroying out 39 out of 40 vessels with over 11,000 casualties. 
making it one of the, at the time, largest losses in Starfleet. And just seeing that character that I loved and respected perverted so was horrifying. And just uh, like you, I think you were going to say, one of those holy crap moments. I mean, and by the way, I mean, it's just, we had consumed television so much differently. That was the season finale. You had to wait four months to see what was happening. And it, I um, mean, that was a painful four months. I think that's the moment where, I mean, Next Gen, the first season was a mess. Season two started to get real good. That's the moment that cements it as, oh, this is going to be talked about forever. And God, what an awesome, I mean, we talk about one of the biggest oh blank moments in pop culture. That's on the list. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, and the repercussions of that uh, two-part episode, especially the destruction at Wolf 359, fo- follows forward through to Picard. I mean, that haunts him throughout Next Generation into Deep Space Nine and other properties. Movies. It's, yeah. It, and it is Picard. First Contact, where he's horribly suffering PTSD thanks to that. Oh, for sure. And it's still in Picard. He's, he's still affected by it. Yeah, it's uh, it's a defining point for the character for that timeline of the show. It yeah, I I couldn't make this list without Locutus in my top three, and yeah, he's number two, which means you probably know who my number one is. Okay, I think your number one is my number two, and there's only one way to introduce him. Con. Yep. <laughs> Um, I actually have that sound file on my phone. I should have had that ready. Um, I will go ahead since it's your number one. I'll just say, I'm assuming you're not going to take this, um, angle. And I realized a while back, Khan is a pro wrestler. Khan is a pro wrestler in the sense that he's larger than everyone. He's stronger than everyone. He thinks he's better looking than everyone. And he thinks he's smarter than everyone, and he's going to tell you all about it in that first episode, Space Seed, February 16th, 1967. And I'll let you take it from there, my friend. Yep, well, yeah, that's my number one, Khan Noonien Singh, the uh, survivor of the eugenics wars of the 20th and 21st century from the original Trek, first showing up in the episode Space Seed, February 16th, 1967. Khan controlled a quarter of the planet and was, while ruthless and militarily, you know, a military genius, Mm -hmm. he was also regarded as the most reasonable of the genetic tyrants, (laughs) which, watching Khan, if he's the reasonable one, that makes me wonder what the rest were like. Uh, Apparently, these wars caused 30 to 35 million in casualties in the 21st century, back in the original Star Trek show, and... uh, Khan tries to take over the Enterprise, is exiled, where we once we will see him once more in the brilliant and iconic Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where he comes back with a vengeance, wanting that vengeance served cold, and uh, gunning for Kirk for exiling to a planet that was uh, subsequently destroyed by a neighboring planet blowing up. <laughs> so uh, I'd, I'd be a little ticked if I were Khan too, but... Uh, 
Ricardo Montalban just does an amazing job, and it is one of the few original Trek show uh, series I episodes I have seen. And he just delivers a wonderful performance in both that and Wrath of Khan. His uh, his delivery of everything just oh. I can't I can't deny he's scenery chewing, but he does it with such intensity. I don't care. You know, right before not that. <laughs> he has a great scene. I mean, the, the William Shatner yelling Khan is, is such a great moment in the Star Trek because there's so much going on. Now, right before that, he, he's he got Kirk trapped on the Genesis planet along with a bunch of others. And there's so much going on. And did I ever tell you, like, Shatner explained that scene, which kind of blew my mind? Like, because they, um, they said that, you know, you know, you're overacting in that scene. He goes, no. Kirk is overacting in that scene because what happens? Kirk knows he's getting off the planet. He already knows. I'm not overacting. Kirk is selling that to Khan. That's Kirk overacting. And I went mind blown because you're right. He knows he's getting off the planet. How fourth wall. Yeah. But there's a moment before that where he says, um, you know, he thinks he's got Kirk trapped on the planet and Kirk's trying to like, but if you want your revenge, you got to come down here. You have to come down here. I, You can't get your revenge on me. And then Khan says, no, I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. And you're like, oh, this dude is cold. He is so good in that role. He is. And I, I we, we talked about him once before when we did our most villainous moments last year. And I had him in my top five for the whole... The earworm thing, the mind controlling, lifting Chekhov off the ground with one arm. And we talked about how there was that great debate about whether or not he was wearing a prosthetic. And it was finally revealed he was not wearing a prosthetic. Yeah, um, apparently they had a much more involved costume over the front. And the yeah. costume designer saw him and said, nope, we're showing those off. Yeah, but you know, it's so funny. I always, I understand why people think is that chain he wears around his neck doesn't move. And it would easily hide the crease and the vest. Like, I get it. I, under, I totally understand why people think that but he was just e evil i mean you sort of and you but you understood him like you kind of know like okay kirk did sort of let you off easy he could have easily sent like rained hellfire down you he had the justification to do so but he understood your motivation says okay fine you're gonna go to this planet we're just gonna leave you alone you stay out of our way we'll stay out of yours and then he doesn't kirk doesn't know that planet's gonna blow up but you all right. you absolutely understand when he says no i'm gonna leave you like you left me like you left her stranded and alone even though he's not alone and i wish to go on hurting you just an absolutely great villain. Wonderful performance. Yeah, it's, I, I, the catalyst there is that, you know, this disaster might not have been such a thing for Khan to seek vengeance on Kirk for had it not claimed his wife. Right. And, you know, like you said, Kirk let Khan off easy originally, exiling him. And part of that was probably because, like I said, he was regarded as one of the less temperamental of those genetic tyrants. Kirk thought he was redeemable. The people in his uh, controlled territories lived in relative peace. He yep. wasn't a warmonger. So, you know, 
there was a thought there that, well, maybe he could form something good if he's given, you know, a yeah. chance. And I, I get that mentality. I think, you know, but we and, see how quickly Khan can swing right. the other way. Yeah, and Kirk admired him to some degree. He, he's think. volatile. He's right. not, his mood swings are not to be trusted. I think Kirk also is like, listen, we either exile this guy or we're in big trouble. <laughs> well, you ended up in big trouble about 25 years later, my friend. Okay. We've arrived at uh, my number one. Your number one. You want to take a guess? I'll just bring it home. Bring it home. My number one was Khan until I did a little research and then I came across something very, very famous and I went, that's my favorite villain and that is the most dangerous villain they've ever had and it's evil spock oh mirror universe the terran the terran empire in terms of ruthlessly powerful perhaps insurmountable organizations the terran empire is unmatched within the star trek universe the Romulans and Klingons are no match for the evil mirror image of the Federation. Even they had to join or die. Ruthlessness not superlative enough to adequately describe the Terran Empire at its peak dominance. Evil Spock, occupying the same position on the Terran Empire's version of the Enterprise as he does in the Prime Universe, first appeared on October 6, 1967's episode Mirror Mirror. Spock is seen as a loyal soldier within the Empire, even remaining loyal to the Mirror Universe version of Captain Kirk. He quickly susses out that the Kirk that shows up is not his Kirk. But he doesn't say, he doesn't tip off that he knows. He knows that I can use this to my advantage. And then eventually tells the, 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 our, the Prime Kirk what, when he knows about it. Now, the reason he's my number one, and this is the most terrifying thing about Evil Spock, and I think you'll agree here, Mark. Evil Spock of the Terran Empire is, save for now, famous, and uh, save for the now famous and off-duplicated dupl off use of the goatee to indicate, oh, this is an evil version of a character that's been redone so many times. Other than that, the differences between Evil Spock and Prime Spock are almost imperceptible. A terrifying proposition to consider. How much would it take for Prime Spock to turn bad? Is it merely a matter of logic? If logic would dictate the destruction of an entire planet to save others, would he just do it? On this, and it, there's really no discernible difference between the two. In terms of intellectually, uh, morally, psychologically, they're the same. But one just happens to be in the Prime Universe. And I, I, I always wondered, like, because there's a, there's a moment at the end of that episode where Kirk kind of looks at Prime Spock and goes, Damn, that, it's almost like he's like, huh, <laughs> this, is, this is the same guy we just saw. It. And, but there's a great... There's a, I think there, there was later explained through one of, um, I forget what, I think it was one of the TV series, maybe DS9 or Voyager, where they, they kind of explained out, like, Kirk says something to uh, Terran Empire Spock, where he says, 
you know, you keep having these uprisings and all these re revolts against your your the the iron fist with which you, with which you rule. At some point, you are all going down. It's inevitable. It'll happen. And Spock says to Captain Kirk, "Those indeed are words to consider." And it turns out later he realizes he ends up taking over the Terran Empire and realizes like, yeah, we're all headed for extinction. So he changes the methods of the Terran Empire and for the better. Um, but I always loved, and I kind of forgot about this, but just the fact that when you look at Prime Spock and Terran Empire Spock, same guy. Yeah, I think if I was going to write a Star Trek Star Wars fan fiction crossover, it would be the Terran Empire setting their sights on the Galactic Empire. Oh, it wouldn't be the Galactic Empire being torn to pieces and then having to become a Rebel Alliance. I, I just, I, 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 I siding with the Rebel Alliance. Could you see like Darth Vader kneeling to Terran Empire Spock? That would be just like, God, dang you guys! What, a, what a fun thing to just talk about, though, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like that would not happen because Vader individually is too powerful. So he probably would not get to that position. Yeah, However, like as, as, a, as a military example, though, there's there's no contest. Right. I mean, it's just... If the Federation would cut apart the Empire, the Terran Empire would make it a five-minute, you know, conquest. Yeah, I mean, just... <laughs> uh, just, just uh, I mean, uh, going through and having these discussions, it's just uh, so much fun. Like, we don't get a chance to talk about trek we haven't had the chance to talk about trek we did do a star trek special back in 2016 for the 50th anniversary which i am very fond of saying is one more special than uh, paramount produced um for the 50th anniversary but really i mean other than like a, a couple of uh stories here and there when we've had universal studios um trying to build an, uh, the rumors of another star trek campus and you know, fortunately, the shows have come out and they've been pretty good. And I, I actually want to really check out Lower Decks. I hear it's really funny. Um, there's a ton. It's not just Star Trek references. There's references all over the place. And, yeah, I've heard good things about it. Oh, and I don't know. Again, we don't know when this is going to air, but I know I'm really excited. In the second season of Strange New Worlds, there is a, a upcoming. There is a Lower Decks and Strange New Worlds crossover. Hmm. But the people from Lower Decks are going to appear as their cartoon counterparts, and the people from Strange New Worlds are going to appear as their live-action counterparts. It's, oh, that's fun. That's going to be I, really, uh, really... I can't... That's going to be awesome. So um, I have a question for you. Go ahead. Um, so you mentioned the Gorn on your list. Yes. And when I was looking up stuff on uh, Strange New Worlds, I saw a little bit of what they did with the Gorn. Yeah. What's your take on that? How do you like that? So what you saw is a Gorn hatchling. What what I saw was like they tried to cross Alien and Predator and made a damn good effort at it. Yes, um, <laughs> and I will say the for I, I spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it, it's not a big spoiler. The episode in which the Gorn first appear is absolutely one hundred percent a love letter to Alien. Yeah, I the clips I watched of it, it was just a couple of minutes on YouTube. I was just, like, wow, this is this is cool. Just awesome. I don't remember which episode. Like I told you guys. Ten episodes, nine of which are fantastic. One of which, if you're a Star Trek fan, you totally get it. If you're not, you think it's the dumbest thing you've ever seen. I got it. One of the great season finales in recent memory for anything I've seen. Just, I mean, I, I follow um, this YouTube channel 
what culture, and they do this thing called Trek culture, and they do ups and downs, ups and downs, and they're just like up, 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 up. Everything about it was up, and it's just so much fun. The, here's the thing about Strange New Worlds, which I don't think you can always say about Star Trek. It's really, really fun. People were upset that it gets really preachy. Uh, guys, it's Star Trek. Yeah, it's duh. always been preachy. <laughs> it has always been preachy. I mean, Spock, as I said in our Heroes one, the whole reason for Spock's is he is Gene Roddenberry. Let's let's just talk about that for a second, if we can. His name sort of is forgotten to some degree. I mentioned this in our um, our Carolyn Johns episodes, where everyone talks about George Lucas and Stan Lee and all these great creators and Steven Spielberg. His name is sort of forgotten in time. You don't hear it, but he was more progressive than all of them combined. I mean, maybe Stanley was pretty progressive, but George Lucas. I mean, or, or excuse me, Gene Roddenberry. Go look at that '60s series. You got a you got a you got a uh, an Asian guy. You got a Russian guy. You have a black woman in a position of power mm-hmm. on the bridge in 1966. I mean, it's just and it, he's always been progressive and he's always been pushing this agenda. And the whole reason for Spock to me. I mean, this isn't something I read before. This is me, like seeing this is Spock was how was how he communicated to us how what he thought of humanity. Um, so I just think that yeah, there's so much there, and it, it's fun again, and I think it's important, especially if you, you look at that first episode of Strange New Worlds. You're gonna go, oh yeah, okay. We knew you you kind of had to go there, given recent uh, historical events, but. We understand why you're there. We understand what you're doing, because yeah. isn't that one of the great things about Star Trek, Mark? It's us. Yeah, it does. It does mirror society in a fantastical setting. So. And also, one of the things I've always loved about Star Trek, and in recent years we've had such turbulent times, I've sort of found Star Trek as this warm blanket, this 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 cozy blanket where Star Trek says we work it all out. It's a very optimistic view of humanity's future. And I look at it and I think, is it likely we'll end up in a place like that? I personally doubt it most times. But you know what? That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Exactly. It's hard for and us that's to believe. And that is the lesson I get from Star Trek is this might not actually happen. But what's the worst that could happen if we actually try? But it's possible. It's possible. Let's let's try. And, you know, I'm going to say that uh, I'm actually glad we started talking about Ricardo Montalban. Because I realized with horror that I didn't really get into that, and it could have been mistakenly thought that I was talking about, you know, the version of Khan played by Bandicoot Camperhatch. So I, I wouldn't want anybody to actually think that. So I forgot very... about that. <laughs> that was so mishandled all across. The way. It's, it's funny the movie's not bad, but no, it's actually a decent movie. It's just, but it's just the whole. That... Uh, it, first of all, they tried to keep it a secret, and it was a terrible it secret. Was obvious so what it, it was going to be. So then it was revealed, and it was, I mean, that thing was dead on arrival, and it just... And then oh. the, the, the casting was, you know, so heavily criticized for good reason, and it just, yeah. it was it was very badly handled. Like I said, like or like you said, if you go back and watch it, it's actually not a bad movie at no, all. No, it's quite good. It's, is it as good as the first one or the third one? No. Mm. But it's it, it's an, it's a solid entry. It's okay. Yeah, My only real disappointment with it was I really wanted to watch Spock kick the crap out of Khan. And it didn't quite have the one-sidedness I was hoping for. It was a pro wrestling <laughs> match. Like that, I remember, you know, Gary will agree with me because he and I are pro wrestling fans. I loved watching Spock hulk up on while he's fighting on a trash barge. 
Like he had the dog pitch and he was like shaking, like he's hulking up like Hulk Hogan. What is what the hell is going on? Here? You know, Spock loses a little bit of control and decides he's gonna go kick Khan's ass. And I was like, Okay, this is gonna be great. I wanted Spock to have a better showing. Yeah. I, in, in my opinion, I'm like, I thought Spock should have given him a better yeah, and then, you know, they set you up for that, and you want to root for him. You're like, okay, we're behind you, Spock. Go beat the crap out of him. Which is funny because we're already not behind Bennett. I mean, Bennett Cumberdetch is a fantastic actor, but he wasn't oh, yeah. I mean, like, because you mentioned, and we talked about, Khan is physically imposing. He's yeah. bigger than everyone. I mean, they should have got The Rock to be Khan. That's, like, would have been closer. Like, if The Rock was Khan, you're like, yes, that guy's Khan. Um, is it weird that in my head the first person I thought was Dave Batista? Oh, yes, he would have been great. Because, you know what? He's actually been showing a lot of nuance in his acting. He's good. No, I like so. Did I you see Blade Runner 2049? No, I haven't. He he has a little part in the beginning of that, but I'm watching him thinking, like, when did he start becoming a really good actor? Because this is yeah. good. <laughs> but T- Dave Batista would have been a great con. I mean, but it's just... Well, I, I still remember watching that movie... When we're supposed to not know who it is, and they do that dramatic turn where he goes, "My name," and we're like, "It's Khan," and he has that. It's it's the pause, like, "My name is it's Khan." We know you're Khan. It's Khan. Everyone knows it's Khan. Like dead silence in the movie theater. <laughs> right? There's Everyone's no cheers. Like, There's no, no applause, shit, dude. Sorry. <laughs> and, I hate when movies do that. Where it's like you've telegraphed this in the plot for the last hour and a yes. half. We know. Yeah. There's no. There's no. And you know me, I I usually don't follow that stuff. I shut my brain off. You're always like, "How did you not see that coming?" I'm like, "I, I you're right. I, I have no excuse for that." But even I was like, "Dude, <laughs> really? This is con." It's con. <laughs> Especially like when they, I, I remember seeing the interviews with Better Cover. Who are you playing? Well, I can't really say. Yeah, okay. So you're basically just told us you're con. Um, and then uh, you know people blatantly ask, "Is it con?" No, I, I can't say anything. Right. I mean, <laughs> you ever hear the story so, about so him con. going? He went up to Patrick Stewart and he goes, so have I just killed my career? And I guess Patrick Stewart got pissed. He's like, what are you talking about, man? He's like, I'm 75 years old and I still have a career because of Star Trek. I mean... Uh, Patrick Stewart is also one of the coolest human beings on the planet. The least pretentious person I've ever seen in interviews. Oh, right. (laughs) And heavily in my top three of celebrities I would want to sit down and have a beer with. Absolutely. Um, and, and plus, the, the good thing about having Patrick Stewart on that list is he's probably going to bring Ian McKellen with him, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and talk about a guy who's, I think, you know, where we, we talked about before, um, how it took the original cast a long time to kind of arrive at the fact that, like, okay, we're part of this forever. But, you know, they were the first ones, right? How could they, they didn't know how to chart those waters. They didn't know how to navigate any of that. Um but I think Patrick Stewart's always sort of been on board. Like, he's always been cool with it. Like, I maybe after I know he had a yeah. rough time the first initially, but he's always been very gracious about it. He's always, I mean, he's like, oh, I'm happy to go back as Picard. I love the character. I mean, he's always been. And most of those next-gen guys have always been very gracious about it and cool with it. Yeah, it's, it's probably also due to Patrick Stewart has, like, zero ego. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's funny. I always, I, the, the fact that the original crew, um, they, they all kind of had contentions, contentious relationships, and yeah. where the next gen crew, they're like, oh, we're the exact opposite. We all love each other. They get together every year. And it's just oh like, yeah, it's like look at all the things they've appeared on together yeah, in different yeah, yeah. properties, like the gargoyles voice acting. Yeah. They've all shown up on Family Guy together and things. I mean, it's just <laughs> just a, just a 
I mean, it's it's really. I think that I still believe that Star Trek is. It's not. I I, I do feel like it almost went away, like after the last movie in 2016. It did seem like it was disappearing. I'm glad it's back. I think it's underrated. I think when you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars and James Bond and all these uh, Lord of the Rings, it tends to fall beneath a lot of that stuff. Um, unjustly so. But, I mean, there is just... I mean, this villain's list was was fantastic. And I, like, like, we, like we said at the beginning, the bench here is probably deeper than any other, with the exception of maybe Marvel and DC. Right. Their bench I mean, com- may be deeper. Oh, yeah. Comic books are going to have a much deeper bench. A lot longer history, a lot more uh, material hitting the market. Yeah, so I think, but other than that, that this is, I mean, I, you mentioned, I mean, there's ones I haven't even experienced yet, like Galdicott and the Dominion, so I'm excited to go down those roads. Yeah, bear with the first few seasons of DS9. It starts getting really good. Well, I mean, let's not forget the first season of Star Trek: The Next Generation was uh, it was a mixed yeah. bag at best. All right, my friend, you want to take us home? All right. Well, we've been talking about Star Trek and Star Trek villains, and uh, you've got our top ten list. We'll see you next time. And until then, enjoy your comics. Now, say enjoy your comics and cling on. Uh, I cannot do that, sir. All you really got to do is, like, grunt and, like... (laughs) That was perfect. Was that proper Klingon? Yep.